Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. I have another cracking guest for you today, but before we get into that, if you want some money off your Northcore gear, go to Northcore on the internet and use the code GRUMPYSURFER10, capital letters, to get 10% off your purchase. On the podcast today, I have a longboard professional surfer. He's won the British and European Longboard Championships and he's competing on the WSL Longboard Tour. In the podcast today, we talk about surf politics, lineup hierarchies, and surfing competition. Please enjoy my conversation with Welsh longboarder Elliot Dudley. Elliot Dudley, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, really good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. How was your little trip down to Portugal? How long were you away for? Um, so we were away for nine weeks in total. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was great actually. Um, I'm kind of, I'm trying to do a write-up at the moment really. And, uh, I kind of, I, I made the fatal error of sort of thinking to myself, oh, I'll leave it to, to the end when I've kind of, you know, can look back on the whole thing. But, uh, but actually it, we ended up doing so many different things and surfing so many different waves. Um, and it kind of, yeah, it put a lot of things in perspective actually for me. I kind of, I've always tried to travel as far and wide as I can really. And I think it really made me realize how much we've got on our doorstep in Europe, you know, um, spent a lot of last year traveling and, and actually probably had in the last nine weeks, probably scored some of the best waves I've ever had in my life. So, um, yeah, definitely can't complain. It was really good. And, uh, but it makes it all the harder coming back to reality now, unfortunately. Yeah, you've come back down to the UK's all over the place, right? With all this COVID stuff and people yeah. in lockdown and people not in lockdown. And yes, uh, I mean, as we were leaving, that was all kind of happening anyway. You know, in, in Wales, for example, you know, when we left, um, they just kind of introduced the, you know, the, the kind of county lockdown, um, which in Wales, especially South Wales, you know, the counties are pretty small. Um, so you very rarely spend any day, any given day in one county, you know, you might pop to the next county over to go do your shopping or go for a surf or, you know, if you surf around where I surf, you know, you often bridge over the two counties. So it's, uh, for the person sitting in, you know, in, in the, in the center in Cardiff, it doesn't, it doesn't really affect them. They, they work, live and work in Cardiff, for example, but, uh, but for the rest of us, it's, uh, it has kind of implications. I think that a lot of you know a lot of people probably didn't foresee i guess um so it was it was definitely tricky and um you know whilst the rest of europe has has restrictions um they don't seem to be um i think the i think the uk is probably suffering some of the some of the, the harshest restrictions in europe at the moment actually so um in so in certain respects anyway so yeah it's a tricky it's a difficult time for everyone really it's uh, it's hard to say it's i think it's the not knowing thing that makes it worse you know you kind of uh you think you're kind of coming out of it and then the next minute you're, you're back in lockdown it's you know wales for example are back in lockdown on the 28th of december which um yeah just bad bad news really you know and i don't think anyone really was 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 looking forward to that so uh yeah it's a, it's a difficult time really it's uh yeah it's tough but well, I, had, I can't i can't complain <laughs> like, you had the right, yeah you had the right idea though going away for a bit did you uh did you travel down you went down to portugal didn't you did you go down yeah. in your van yeah so um my fiance and I, we kind of, um, I spent one of the, I, one of the sort of more productive things I did in lockdown, um, was spend a bit of time on my van. Um, so yeah, we sort of, I've got a Volkswagen transporter and, uh, you know, insulate it, put leisure battery, all that kind of stuff in. So that, 
that kind of uh, a kind of sort of triggered really the, the plan of maybe you know if we couldn't because because basically we were supposed to be away um, for a full year um, and we ended up having our trip cut short at the kind of just over past the halfway point so you know we're in this situation where you know our house is rented out um, we had all these savings um, and we were like kind of just clutching at straws really of how we could somehow at least kind of while while we had this time off you know we were both taking breaks from work where we could actually use that time productively um you know and first off we were like okay we'll try and get back to australia that wasn't really going to happen um and then it was going to be maybe go to bali but again that's that's kind of off the cards um and then yeah so it kind of with with, with the work i did on the van then it was like oh do you know what like we both always dreamt of doing a trip around europe really um a lot of places i haven't seen there's definitely even more places that my fiance hadn't seen um so yeah it kind of one thing led to another really and then it, with the, with the lockdown kind of coming in um back in october we were kind of we kind of forced to bite the bullet really and just went online booked a ferry and then and then we were gone um but yeah the plan was always to sort of effectively circumnavigate um sort of the iberian peninsula um start in spain down the west coast of portugal um, and then back into Spain and around the Mediterranean coast, um, yeah, which which we ended up doing, which was good. It was amazing. Had a had a really good trip. Um, yeah, it's actually makes you makes you feel a little bit better. I think about the potential for future travel. You know, I think um, it's it's such an easy trip to do. Actually, um, there's so many uncrowded, perfect waves like like anywhere you'll find that people tend to gravitate towards the well-known spots you know it's the same in back home you know there's everyone goes to kind of uh you know i use cornwall as an example if there's south swell and a, and a northwesterly wind everyone's at port levin but that's not to say that there's you know a bunch of other spots that probably aren't working um when you look at the west coast of, of portugal for example there's just endless endless beach breaks um but everyone kind of bottlenecks and accumulates at Peniche. But you drive, you know, even 20 minutes north of Panisha's tons of other beach breaks with hardly anyone in. So it, it was good, actually. It was kind of, it was good to kind of, when you have longer, a longer trip like that, you have a lot more chance to explore and, and you know, and, and dig, dig, you know, dig a bit deeper than you would on a two-week trip where you're just desperate to get as many waves as you can, as quick as you can, um, before you have to go back to work. But when you've got nine weeks, you kind of, you can, you can kind of wait for certain spots to work and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think what we take for granted in, or we don't take for granted in this country very much is the, the fact that we are actually a small island and compared to like other countries you know like Europe the Basque country Spain Portugal they've got such vast coastlines and they might have a, a few small you know coastal um, towns or villages knocking about but then there's these vast spaces that you can go down and they are all uncrowded I mean Hossig is a, a um, a really good example of that you've you've got all these you've got the Hosker town and Combretan and then lots of different you know uh, Beeritz all these little places that are knocking around there but you go 20 20 minutes up the road or down a little track somewhere and then you've got peaks to yourself and there's nobody about yeah so I mean I, I actually we actually managed to get to France for a couple of weeks before the, the kind of quarantine rules change in the summer um, and to be honest I did. Oh, I can't say I had a bad time. You know, I was surfing every day. It was boiling hot, um, but I, I honestly didn't enjoy the surfs anywhere as much as I, I feel like I should have done. Um, 
it has got to kind of, and I don't know if it was because of COVID and there was sort of limited options of where people could go, you know, there was no kind of trips to Indo or, or further afield. Um, but there's, I mean, there's more, I mean, there was, any, the, the, the number of surfers was growing day by day anyway. And I think, um, I think COVID's actually probably accelerated that, um, you know, people can't do things indoors. They're looking for new things to do. And, and even on this trip that we noticed that, um, I mean, I don't know, I can't sort of, I've got friends who've got the decathlon softboards, but honestly, I, there were some days at some beaches where I honestly, it blew me away how many of the, you'd be walking along the beach and like, it was like just a sea of um, Olayan or whatever they're called, decathlon softboards. And that's just at one beach. And that's, and you see the same thing at every beach you go to. So, you know, surfing's growing exponentially, good or bad, depends on what, which side of the fence you look, look at it from. I'm a bit more of a kind of, I'm a bit more of a purist, really. I, I don't really like the, I sort of, surfing's going down the, the skiing route, you know, where everyone skis, don't they, or snowboards. You know, if you're, if you're from a kind of middle-class family, chances are you went on a skiing holiday once a year. Um, and, you know, and you, pot, you, you do it once a year, you, you know, and that's it. And surfing's kind of becoming that way, which where it never was really. It was the kind of thing that you kind of you if once you it was a real commitment to to be a surfer, um, and you only did it if you were going to be you know really dedicated to it, you know, and chase swells and going in the dead of winter when it's horrible. And, and obviously back in the day, wetsuits used to be a lot worse, and it was it was just wasn't a pleasant experience most of the time. Whereas surfing now is just an easy, safe, soft, topped experience, you know. Um, so I think you know, it is only going to get busier and busier. And I found France for me was almost like the pinnacle of that, you know, it was, it was to the point where it was almost impossible to catch a wave without someone dropping in on you or someone being in your way. And it was, it's kind of stressful really, which is, you know, kind of goes against what I, you know, why I surf and I don't go out there to, to get stressed. It's a, it's a release really. It's supposed to be relaxing, but like you said, there's kind of, there are so many places that, I mean, I guess it's a positive thing that there is, there is so much space left out there, you know, um, especially when it comes to kind of the, the less than perfect waves, you know, the slightly heavier waves or the colder waves. I think the problem for me actually as a longboarder is that the, the best ways for longboarders are also the best ways for the beginners and, the, and those people on the softboards. And I think that's where probably my frustration lies is that if I only ever surf 10 foot slabs, it wouldn't be an issue um, because, you know, there's only a small percentage of people that can actually surf those ways whereas if you are looking to go out on a 9-8 single fin longboard chances are the way that way will be perfect for you know that person who's just gone into decathlon and bought the surf the combination the surf combination package um off the shelf uh, and just dive dived in there kind of head first so that that's the, i guess it's my my issues probably lie more with the fact that I'm a longboarder really um, rather than you know as a general thing I think uh, if you know and I noticed that on this trip really you know as soon as it got over sort of four or five foot and started getting a bit heavy the crowd sort of disappeared and it was great you know you'd have three hours out there to yourself surfing some of the heaviest perfect waves Portugal has to offer um, but then on those small days that are supposed to be fun they're, they're not fun anymore in a lot of, in a lot of places. And, and it is frustrating. Um, definitely. And I don't know, I don't know how that's going to change or how it, you know, if there's maybe a way that, uh, you know, there was a petition wasn't there for decathlon to put kind of uh, rules on etiquette on all their boards, you know, which I thought was a bit uh, pointless. Really. I don't see how that's ever going to 
people aren't going to read it. People don't read the instruction manuals for their iPhones or their cameras, so they're not going to read it, read it for a surfboard, are they? Well, you see, uh, people put signs and stuff down at the beaches about etiquette and stuff, but it's just ignorance, really. You know, people go down there for one purpose, don't they? And um, to catch waves, and and if the people are in the way, this is kind of like the attitudes I see at the moment, especially you know. Um, during the smaller days is that people are like that. Well, I don't care if you've got priority or, you know, you're on the peak. I'm going anyway, hoping that you'll fall off. I mean, I, yeah. I went, I went to a local reef spot um, recently in the last few weeks and um, we went down there and I was expecting loads of people to be there. And there was three of the people in. So there was five of us all together for about an hour and it was brilliant you know, taking it in turns like you would do it like a, you, what, like you would do at a point break. Yeah. You know, taking it in turn to catch those waves. And then the world descended. I don't know what happened, whether somebody sent a text message out to the whole of North Devon, but yeah. that's literally what happened. And everybody came down and then within 10 minutes it was crowded. And then when the set waves were coming through, people weren't waiting. They were just going. Yeah, and, and nine times out of ten, the guys that were going were either too deep, they weren't sat in the right place, and they was, everybody was just dropping in on each other. And I was like, that. "Do you know what? Add an hour to myself, pretty much. So I'm just going to get out." And and the car park was full, and they, and people were pulling out all sorts of boards down there, foamies, yeah. long boards, and I was like, "This is like a really sort of like short boardy wave as well." Yeah, like, yeah. It, it's, it's funny because I'm kind of I grew up outside of the kind of I, I i grew up in newport so i was always traveling to surf anyway so i was kind of in a funny situation where i wasn't ever really a full local at a spot but i was known at a lot of spots which is actually in in wales it's kind of quite tribal um you know the where where i sort of the area that i surf there's probably three main surfing areas and they're all from one to the other is probably as the crow flies maybe 10 to 12 miles so it's not a huge area but no of those three areas very rarely do, does anyone leave their local area to surf the one that's down the road even if it's better so it, it is very tribal um but you know like you said in that situation that you you were talking about you know if you surf a reef break with a load of guys that you know um and you know that you know i don't know johnny's always going to make catch the wave and make the takeoff you don't even worry about that you know paddling just in case you know and and, and it and like you say it, it's just so nice to have when you have those sort of sessions where everyone is on the same page you know you're all taking it in turns but it only takes one person to come into that equation and it just blows it out completely if you have that one person who maybe goes for the way that you're going for crumbles the section you then have to pull back and then then it, it throws it, 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 it into complete disarray. And, and, you know, whilst I'm not kind of, you know, lo, you know, the kind of hardcore localism, you can kind of, I guess I can see what you can see where it comes from, you know, because it is, if it is just four or five people that, you know, it's an imminently more fun experience, you know, it's, it's just great. It's the, it's what we all live for really is just to, you know, to have a quiet, a good quiet surf with your mates. But, you know, unfortunately, you know that that is becoming rarer and rarer and i don't really know you know especially with kind of social media and everyone you know whatsapp groups like i mean we've got a club whatsapp group and ironically the one thing that our surf club don't really talk about 
that much is surfing <laughs> and that's kind of really how it should be i think whereas there's a lot of whatsapp groups out there i think that are basically dedicated to sharing where everyone's going surfing that day and i think that to me just is just it's mind-boggling really i just wonder what, what where these people learn to you know to surf or what kind of surf scene they grew up in because everywhere i kind of you know you were always hoping to arrive at the beach on your own and get it to yourself really that was the kind of the main aim of the game whereas now it seems to be um share share with as many people not so much necessarily so that you can get good waves just to say that you can be there you know um i know there's been a lot of issues around port levin lately and i know i met saw nathan phillips who's actually ironically from wales but lives down in cornwall now um he put it quite well really is that you know port levin is a heavy wave you know it's not for the faint-hearted um and on a good day when it's absolutely rammed probably oh probably at least 60 percent of the surfers out there just aren't even going to get a wave or, or even make it but he put it really well basically all they just want to say that they were out there when it was pumping you know when when it was that you know mega swell you know december 9th or whatever i don't know that's, that's just as an example everyone's there you know or oh, where did i surf i surf levy you know and that's that's it's a weird one really because i wouldn't i wouldn't want to surf a spot unless i'm actually going to surf it you know and enjoy the session and get waves whereas it seems like a lot of surfers these days just kind of are in it for the scene you know to say oh yeah you know to tell the story um you know in the whatsapp group or online when they get they get home you know it's it's a funny one really um because it, the ocean is there for everyone but I think the, the, there's kind of everyone needs to know their limits. They need to know what they want from a surf session. Have they got the right? They, like you said, when you've got longboarders turning up to you know hollow reef breaks, it's just those waves aren't cut out for longboards. That's why I don't you know I don't ride a longboard most of the time at home in the winter. I ride shortboards for that exact reason. You know, so if you're a longboarder, there's there's spots that are really great for longboarding. You know, and you sh you should really be going there. Um, but yeah, it's a different. I don't know. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's kind of a you go through you go through stages where you have a run of like amazing kind of good surfs with hardly anyone in and then you have one of those shocking surfs where it feels like everyone's descended on your local spot and you're like and you come out kind of raging uh, but i guess that's just that's just the nature of surfing i guess these days that's i think you, you you brought up a good point there and that you know i was gonna i was gonna say earlier is that you know you've got a lot of people down in the water these days especially during this covid period i think everyone's you know taken that surfing is a really good outdoor pursuit to to get involved in but again i had a session down at croyd maybe a week or so ago and there was loads and loads of people there but i was just sat there watching just out back i was just watching and there was maybe two or three people out of like a pack of 30 they were actually catching anything. Everybody else was either sat there, they were sat in the wrong place, they weren't moving about, they weren't shifting, they weren't looking for the peaks, they weren't looking for the sandbars that were working. And and the guys were just kind of sat there. And these guys were on like, you know, Channel Island boards. They're on these these stereotypical shortboards that probably you or I used to watch the pros surf. You know, these really thin, wafer-thin things. There was no real volume in there, but the guys that kind of... I mean, I'm not putting myself into this category, but the guys that were catching the waves had the right boards. They had, you know, the volume, but they were still there, still had their short boards, and they were catching loads and loads of waves. And it just seems that, you know, even if there is a lot of people in the water, there's really not many, not many people catching stuff. And probably, like you say, they're going down there to say, 
you know, I was there when this day was good, which is kind of, I don't know, is it just a weird thing to, it's like saying I'm going to go and watch Manchester United versus Arsenal, but don't even like football. You know, yeah, it's kind it's of like that, a, isn't it? Just to kind of tick it off the list, really. And I, and I think that is, there is a lot of that, you know, I think in in, in not just in surfing, but in, in all sports these days, you know, like I, I, I started skating again during sort of, well, just sort of, yeah, during lockdown and a bit when I was traveling as well, you know, and I noticed there's like, there's a whole scene of people that hang out at skate parks who just walk around, just sit around, like it's more teenagers and stuff, but they just sit there with the skateboard. They don't actually <laughs> skate, you know, and it's like, it's just so they can, I mean, you know, we all, I moan, I, I can't exactly, I'm always kind of, I always like to think that I kind of keep check of my hypocrisy really. Cause you know, I, I, I moan about all these things. Yeah. I'm on Instagram and I post photos of surfing and I post, and I probably post more photos of my local spots than I should, but um, you know, and, and we're all guilty of it. So like, you know, for every time I have a rant, I think to myself, you know, am I, am I really on a, you got to be careful on the moral high ground because it's a long way to fall from there, you know? So um, hence that's, the that's, podcast name. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, really. I, I like what you said there about the wave, you know, thing, even, you know, like even the worst session that I'll ever have, I will probably get at least twice as many waves as probably the next person. So again, I, and, and that's, and that is down to, it's down to a few things, really. Um, it's mainly down to like my board choice, you know, luckily being a long boarder, I think, even though I do shortboard, I mean, I am really a lot, I guess I'm a long boarder because I generally ride kind of slightly alternative equipment, but I'm, I've always got the right board for the job. You know, I'm never going to be, I don't really miss waves. But to me, if you're missing waves, then you're on the wrong board, you know? Um, if I, and that, and I, I think that should be something that should be drummed into most servers. If you're, if you're not, if you're, if you're missing, I don't know, for every five waves you paddle, if you're missing three of those waves, you are 100% on the wrong board. You can convince yourself all you want that it's the waves fault or, or, you know, someone's in your way or, you know, oh, that yeah, was a bit fat or whatever. It's you're on the wrong board, basically. You know, when you, when you watch the top surfers, you know, you kind of, I don't know, your Caddy Slayers, your Felipe, Felipe Toledo's, those guys, they do not miss waves ever. Like, you know, like if they're free surfing, they just, they just catch everything. In, when we were in Portugal, um, oh, what's his name? Kanoa Igarishi um, was out one day. It's um, this way called Mole Leste, which is just the kind of the harbour wall side of super tubes. And yeah, the guy did not, I mean, the, the concept, I couldn't ever foresee him missing a wave. It just, on the tiniest twig of a shortboard you've ever seen, just paddling with ease because he's got that board dialed, you know, and, and the problem, and that's the problem really. A lot of guys go, Oh, look at, look at Kanoa out there ripping, you know, on his, on his groveler, which is like 25 liters or something. Um, the guy's an elite athlete, you know, he surfs probably eight hours a day and is as fit and as healthy and as in tune as you'll ever get. Of course, he's going to be able to ride that board, but your average surfer who surfs, even even a, even a guy who surfs three or four times a week and is in fairly good shape, they're still not going to be able to catch waves on boards like that. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it definitely comes down to equipment, you know. And then I'm also lucky in the fact that I I do surf a lot, so I've got the you know I've got the surf fitness, and I've never really had you know a long period of inactivity that you know where where the kind of the slowness kind of creeps in really. So I'm quite lucky in that respect. Is but I'd say. I can put it down to fitness a little bit, but it is generally down to, to equipment choice. Um, you know, 
what was um, your um, what was your quiver that you took down to um, down well, to work with you? So that was a bit of a contentious one actually, because um, <laughs> well, you can imagine a Volkswagen Transport is not the biggest van, especially when there's two of you in it. Um, so I think we had seven boards in all, um, and two of those weren't mine; they were they were my fiance's. So five, I took five boards, which I had whittled down. Actually, it was going to be more than that, but. Um, I guess you do need a bit of room to sleep. So that was, that was kind of why I whittled that down a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I had a, a five, six twin fin fish, which is kind of been riding boards like that for a long time, actually, probably for a good 12 or 15 years, I'd say. They're so um, much all, fun, aren't they? They are good fun yeah. fishes. And there's so many days kind of, they, they fill the void really between the kind of the fun kind of rippable days and, the, and what I call the kind of proper, the, the real serious days, you know, kind of like there's, there's, there's a time where you maybe could longboard, but, you know, perhaps the wave shape isn't quite right. It's too kind of short and punchy. And then that's where those boards are just perfect, really. Um, and the one, the, the 20 I've actually got, um, it's kind of, it's not really thick. You know, a lot of the, these kind of retro keel fin. Not so much now, actually. I think people are actually starting to realize that they don't, these boards don't need to be as fat. You know, I know like DHD and um, Album and all those guys, that they, they, they are making some really high performance twin fins these days, which is, I think is really good because there was a point where, you know, someone said, oh, I'm going to make, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, this rich, we've made a rich Pavel speed dialer coffee, and, you know, and you'd pick it up and it'd be like, you know, these big, fat, fat, chunky rails and, and you'd ride it and it would be like, it would be like you were kind of sort of sitting on the surface of the water, you know, you, you find in a straight line, you'd be flying along, but as soon as you try to do a turn, it's just the fat rails just would just, you just bulk basically, or do that kind of that fat, the, the flat kind of tail slide that those boards are, are, are kind of tend to do. Um, whereas the twenties I've always ridden, cause I've actually, I've, I used to ride Rich Pavel speed dialers for a good while. I had, I've got three of them at home. When you actually pick up one of those boards, you know, they are wide and they are short, but they're super foiled in the rails, you know, like way for thin in the tail. Um, and, you know, and, and it just enables those thin, those really thin kind of um, even keel or quad fin fishes. You know, you can ride, you can kind of ride them in anything, really, if you get them dialed. And um, the only time I, I feel like they really don't work is, is backside in hollow waves. Um, almost because they do hold their line a bit too much you know sometimes when it's when you kind of if you pull into a, a backside bow you kind of you almost need that little bit of slide just to get you into position um but yeah you know if when i went traveling um last year I, the one board i took was a five six twin fin fish you know which i guess your, your average short border would be like you're nuts you know like that's that's their small wave board whereas i was kind of having to surf it in in all sorts but yeah they are super versatile um so I, I always take a always take a 20 on a trip um and then i took um a six three kind of step up board really um which i've never really used consistently um i always end up taking them on on trips um but i always find it's kind of a bit of a jinx really as soon as i get a decent step up board um i never really, i never seem to get the waves to use them um you know i went to went to Indo about five years ago and the same thing happened. I was just expecting the waves of my life, got this perfect tube riding board and, and I don't think we had anything over over four foot the whole trip, you know. So I was, I've was i always been a bit wary of getting a kind of step up board for that reason, exactly. Um, but this trip, probably of all the short, like of the short shorter boards I took, that was the one that I got most use out of just because 
honestly, the west coast of Portugal just had non-stop waves for well the whole time we were there. And then I've just been, you know, even when we left, I was still looking at the chart and it was just, I mean, it, it wouldn't have dropped below four foot the whole time. Um, and, and you need, you did need something with a bit more volume and just, you know, I'm not super fast, you know, like some of the short borders. So I, so I kind of need to get in a little bit earlier. So six, six, three is just right for me really for those kind of waves. Um, and then I took two mid range boards as well. Um, one kind of more of a displacement hole kind of, classic kind of uh mid-length um just an all-rounder that i kind of ride a lot at home it's great in kind of the kind of ways where it's kind of too fat to shortboard um but too big to longboard that kind of thing um, that was a seven four single fin and then the other board the other sort of mid-length i took with me um was a seven six twin fin um which so the guy matt carvani that shapes uh for bing that was his personal board that he made for Tabarua. Um, and I've been hassling him to make me a twin fin for ages. I really wanted a twin fin mid-length for bigger days. Um, just because I, I kind of, for me, it's, you know, when it gets over six, eight foot, I'm not, you're not really going to be doing, I'm not going to, I'm personally, I'm not going to be able to doing anything too radical. Um, and I just love the way those kind of mid-length boards feel. Um, you know you can catch waves so easy on them and i think from there it's a great starting point then to set yourself up on the wave um so yeah you draw that... some really nice lines with them can't you you yeah. know you really really sort of like long drawn out turns where you don't really lose too much speed because you've got that volume in there too yeah i mean that that twin fin as well i don't know if it was the channel bottom or the just or something else um it's just got a single channel between the fins but it's the only board i've ever had where you kind of you're almost going you when you do a cutback which would normally shave off speed you get this kind of like instant like like burst of speed out of it um to the point where when you first if you've been riding another board and you first get on it you kind of end up you find yourself kind of almost wheeling a lot um and that board i kind of again i took that board in in you know in, in expectation of surfing bigger waves uh, and i actually had it it's funny again this is the, the one of those things that you know is guaranteed to jinx you. But I actually had a specific wave, specific conditions in mind for that board the whole trip. So it was kind of in the van, and 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 um, Marie Claire, my fiance, was kind of going, "Oh, you shouldn't have brought that board. You're never going to use it. You're never going to use it." And um, and obviously with the sleeping arrangement, it was just a pain in in the neck trying to organise the boards every day. But we got to we finally got to to the Algarve or the west coast of the Algarve and. And, and, and Al, uh, Arafana was basically the wave that I wanted to surf that board at because I've surfed it before um, on my on my fish, and um, it's just a really kind of big, you know, it only it needs to be sort of six foot to work the point break, um, and it kind of it's just a big open faced wave with just and there is a barrel section, but it's kind of like it's not like a it, you kind of come into the barrel section, you're not kind of taken off into it. So you, so you just need like, you just need a fast board basically. And I was like, when I got that board, I was like, oh, this is, this is the board for Arafana. So luckily we got to Arafana and, and with the swell that we had, just had a couple of, you know, epic days there. Um, just really, you know, solid sort of two, three times overhead and just the board just excelled really. It was, it was kind of the, one, one of those occasions where you, you were like, finally I've got, I filled a hole in my quiver really with that board. Um, because it did exactly what I wanted it to do, you know, just get in early, set a line, make big, make it around these big kind of wide sections, you know, and, and, and just, yeah, just hold in really when you needed it to. So 
yeah and then the the overboard um i took was much just a my sort of nine eight standard nine eight longboard really um yeah and it's i mean i don't know if you've how much you've traveled with longboards but they're a pain in the neck <laughs> they're epic especially when you well nine foot is still awkward but that nine eight ten foot size is yeah especially lug it on and off the top of your roof and yeah when you're traveling putting it in your boat in your van or under your van and just yeah it's just a big bit of foam isn't it to move about yeah and and i mean like it's just yeah there's no way that they they can go in the van and sleep in them so they're on the roof the whole time and then you're kind of you're constantly worried about them getting stolen so i would kind of rigged up all these kind of bike locks and lockable straps and stuff like that so touch wood we 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 got away with it which was good i was i was actually quite surprised because you know, Spain and Portugal have got a pretty bad rep for petty crime, especially in some of the, you know, the more localized spots, you know, like we surf Rodiles one day and, you know, you're parked in the forest there and you're kind of like, oh, all that stuff's going to be gone when we get back. But I don't know. I don't know if it's just kind of a, a societal shift, but I'm going to jinx myself big time here. Touch wood. <laughs> but I do feel like with the way people have become so materialistic these days and people, even the thieves, they want more than just, to flog a you know a second hand surfboard so there are that kind of petty theft seems to have declined a little bit um again i've jinxed myself big time but i think yeah you know they want debit cards credit cards and they want iphones that's they're not really interested in nicking a because it's a gamble isn't it you, you nick a board off the roof it could be a a bick or something you don't really know what it's going to be and it's going to be practically worthless and who's going to want to there's so many surfboards out there now for sale anyway who's going to want to buy it? You're going to struggle to shift it, you know? Um, you used so, to hear uh, these horror stories of people traveling down, down to sort of like that part of Europe. And um, I think one of my friends was telling me he had, um, he had a motorhome. And one of the things, I think it was in France, you know, the toll roads when you're traveling yeah. down to sort of like the Basque country, he was telling me that um, he'd heard stories of people pulling over into the, into the airs or the laybys and, uh, and they, pumping some sort of like gas into it to yeah. make it out and then nicking all your stuff and then you wake up and you're like you've got well ironically a friend of mine um my friend all uh oliver he uh he lives in west wales it actually happened to him and his family oh they, really uh, yeah they um they woke up they did this exact thing woke up super groggy and were like like it wasn't like they hadn't come in and like kind of trashed the place. They kind of just picked, you know, they, they'd obviously had all the time in the world because everyone was passed out, but they just picked off a load of all the kind of money and valuables and stuff. And uh, yeah, so that does that used, to, I mean, I don't know if it still happens. This was that again, that was a while ago that that happened, but, uh, but yeah, you know, you used, like my dad went down to Portugal. He tells a story all the time. It was something, it must've been when the Falklands was on. Cause he said, you know, the, the, it was the end of the Falklands war happened while he was away. And there's kind of a historic link with the, um, you know, the Portuguese and the British, you know, going back to the, you know, the, the Napoleonic Wars and that kind of thing. And he went, stopped in this bar and I think it was like Peniche or Eresir or something. And guy came out and was like, oh, you know, are you British? Oh, the Falklands Wars ended and kind of gave him like some free Matthias Rose or something like that anyway. But on that same trip, he, uh, he had a second skin custom wetsuit. So this would have been like early eighties, second skin custom wetsuit and this like Olympus OM1 camera. And it was stolen from the back of, of the rental car. And the rental car, I think at the time was a mini or something, which is again, how kind of, um, how kind of, yeah, that's a bit of this, well, you can't make it up. Can you really? But yeah, he had, you know, he had his, this brand new 
wetsuit and camera stolen you know so yeah i mean that's just stuff used to happen all the time and you used to you used to hear horror stories and yeah i was kind of paranoid the whole trip really but um you know yeah t- touch wood um managed to get away with it really so uh yeah i think as well it's kind of especially in sort of southern portugal there's just so most people down there now um most people we came across were, were sort of fellow travelers um there's, there's actually a bit of an issue down in, in the Algarve now with the kind of the number of vans down there and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's kind of kind of got to breaking point. Um, I think the van life thing is great in principle, um, but <laughs> when you actually when it when it when every kind of beach car park becomes a, a glorified campsite, um, I can I can definitely empathise with the locals. Um, you know, and while well, they might start getting a little bit annoyed, imagine you went down to kind of Croyd on a on a Saturday morning, and there was no car parking spaces, and it was full of vans, and there was shit everywhere. Um, sorry for swearing, but oh. no, don't worry about that. <laughs> it's a podcast. It's a you podcast. You sell what you want. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean, and that and that's kind of how it is, really. That was that was probably that was the, that was probably the most negative thing that we came across, really. Um, I guess trying to distance ourselves from the the kind of the sort of inconsiderate. Um, Van, van kind of van life elements really we actually to the point where when we were in the Algarve we stayed in we stayed in the campsite for a lot of the time um which a lot of people didn't do but we did it was like you know eight euros a night for the for the for the a knowing that you've got a bit of security but also knowing that you're not annoying local people who are you know having to you know there's a you know, worldwide pandemic going on there's all sorts of they're having to deal with all sorts of restrictions and, and then there's that kind of the kind of carefree travelers down there just kind of doing what they want really running you know running riot over the place well look those bikes down the algarve you know arafan Capitera, and you know with a few of the other places down there there's there's not really that many well when i went there probably about well, when's last time i went down about two or three years ago maybe longer than that there weren't really that many facilities down there it was just like a rocky car park that you rocked up in and if you're living down there I can imagine people are shitting all over the place if they're living yeah. down there. And it's especially during the summer as well or during the hot, hotter periods, you know, there's loads of rubbish everywhere because people are just lazy and not going to ditch it all. And it, yeah, that van life thing that you're talking about is the, the idea behind it is really sort of like iconic, but, when it comes to actually doing it, it's quite, you might as well be a soldier being living in the field. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, it can be hardcore sometimes. Yeah. I just think it's that thing of it's, it's all very well, like every influencer and their dog going down saying, you know, taking the photo and then having their morning coffee, looking out over the beach. Like I, and it's great. You know, like I, I grew up doing stuff like that. You know, my parents had a motorhome. We used to, from the age of five, we used to go down to Pembrokeshire and, and camp, you know, sometimes free camp and, um but it was like there was no one doing it you know it was really kind of it was it was just the the hardcore kind of surf fraternity really that did that kind of thing um it can't it's it's definitely it's just not sustainable to have that many vans at a a beach you know with if there was just one person there on their own wandering off into the bush with their shovel you know taking a dump in a hole and burying it like that's that's you know that's probably actually as sustainable as you can get really However, when you've got a hundred people, you know, it just, it just can't work, you know? Um, and, and likewise, unless there's facilities for people to, to get rid of their waste, you know, if they've got a chemical toilet or, you know, 
there, and there aren't the facilities. There, there are some facilities, but they're not meant for, you know, half of Europe to be there, you know, from, you know, it, it blew me away actually how far and wide people had come from, you know, there's a lot of Swiss people, a lot of Dutch, um, you know, a lot of Hungarian, there was Hungarian people there, Polish people, people from the Czech Republic. And, and again, it's, you know, I'm not, I've, I've tried to be really careful about being hypocritical, you know, cause I'm the same, I'm from Northern Europe and I've driven down there to kind of <laughs> escape, you know, winter and, and, you know, and sort of lockdown and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not, I'm not kind of, I'm not on, on any, I'm not going to try and get, stay on my moral high ground cause I don't have one, but I don't, I think the, the issue is because those people aren't from surf communities, they cannot empathize with the locals. They don't know what it's like where they live. No one wants to, you know, no one wants to go to, to Munich and park up in a car park and live in their van today. It's not, so van, the van life thing isn't an issue there, but if you live in a coastal community and then you go out, oh, imagine this happened at my local beach. What would I think about it with this many vans? Then you, you start changing your behavior a little bit, you know, and you think, oh, actually, you know, I could save myself eight euros by camp free camping, but eight euros for the, you know, to make, to stay somewhere legit and not piss anyone off. It's a small price to pay, you know? And I think that's the issue I think with it is most of those people don't come from coastal communities um, and they don't see the impact that it has. They just think it's kind of like, it's, it's fair game there's no sign that says i can't camp there therefore i will um and that's kind of not really the point you know it's sort of you should have a bit of common sense really you know is it a beautiful natural area that doesn't have any real parking or facilities then you shouldn't you shouldn't be there um in, in your van in in you know in the numbers that they are so um the key yeah, point there you were just saying was common sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there because common sense is not what people have majority of the time. No, no, I know we live, we do live in a world where kind of everything's kind of done, you know, we're all very spoon fed on stuff. We're told what's right, what's wrong. People don't kind of make their own decisions very often these days, do they? No. I mean, it's like, it's the same with, you know, like we were going back to surfboards, you know, it kind of people can watch it's a classic one when you when you watch the kind of demo videos of like i don't know the new channel islands board um it's a groveler so they'll show like oh we've got one of our team riders on our on our latest groveler model and they'll show them you know a really rubbish day at rincon you know it's only like three to four foot rincon you know rubbish on the groveler and you're like that day if you if you've ever surfed the waves that they kind of you know rincon for example rincon three to four foot is as good as like the best day ever in most in you know most of the UK. So what they mean by a groveler is not the same as what we would mean by a groveler. <laughs> you know, like, like my, my my idea of groveling is like literally like two foot onshore, the kind of surf where you know the likes of kind of your average Santa Barbara surfer or you know if you you know you ride JSs or whatever you know your average kind of Gold Coast surfer. They literally wouldn't even look at it. They definitely wouldn't go in the water. Um, so, so it's that, but it's that common sense thing. It's like, oh yeah, this is a grovel. So I'm just gonna must be what I need for for you know for small kind of you know British waves. But it's kind of plus the it. fact when they go out and surf those boards, they absolutely rip the back out of waves, and people think that they can go and do it because it's the board doing it. When actually, it's yeah, the, the the technical aspect behind that is you know way above what any normal person would do. They had a classic one on um, on Channel Islands. It was uh, they had. It was I can't remember what it's called. It's like called like an average Joe or something. This model, like I can't remember the exact name. But they had they they were like, oh, this is you know great for your average surfer. And they had the um, one of the guys that works in the shop or the factory. 
um, you know, just your average surfer. And he goes out and he's like, just doing some nice, you know, top turns calves, and then just, you know, just does the casual air reverse, you know, <laughs> like, that's like, that would put him in the top 1% in, in the UK, you know, and this is like supposed to be a board for average surfers. And it's like, yeah, they kind of, they missed the mark a little bit. I don't know whether they were trying to be ironic or they're just living in a complete dream world, but it's, it is, yeah, it's just, I, anyone else would watch that and go, that's not the board for me. <laughs> that guy's a ripper. Do you know what I mean? But most people don't, they go out and that's why, you know, you go on like the secondhand board forums and there's like nearly new, you know, sh like to me, shortboards, and, they, and they've been this way for a long time, your high performance shortboards, they're almost like a disposable item. Um, they don't really like hold up more, you know, beyond 10 surfs, you know, maximum, they, you know, the deck starts going pretty quickly. So if you're buying one, you're going to make sure you're going to use it to death because really once even like one surf on one of those boards, it's, it's, it's not nearly new anymore. Do you know what I mean? But the amount of those kind of boards that you see for sale on the secondhand forums and stuff, and it's just, you know, it's mind blown because they're not cheap either. You know, these boards are retailing at like seven, 700 quid, you know, it's a huge amount of money really to, to fork out and, and people are buying them based on kind of online reviews and, 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 the the blurb from the shaper you know and it's um yeah it's just a like you say there's just a lack of common sense i think um to a certain extent let's talk a little bit about your um your career so what what got you into into longboarding because i could imagine growing up in the coastal community a lot of you know your peers would have been you know quite heavily into into shortboarding you know as like skate really and um, what, what drew you to longboarding as opposed to shortboarding? Um, to be honest, when I started longboarding, it was kind of, it hadn't really had its kind of 90s resurgence just yet. I started longboarding probably in about 95. Um, I'd been surfing for a few years, just on a, you know, like back in those days, there was no, like, foamies didn't exist, actually, really. There was one foam board manufacturer that you could get boards from, and that was Swell. And I remember my dad looked at getting me one and they were like, back then they were like 300 quid. And this is like pretty much 30 years ago. So that was a lot of money. And wetsuits, again, when I look at like how cheap kids wetsuits are now, you know, my first wetsuit was like 60 quid. You know, it was really, really expensive. And it was terrible. It was like super uncomfortable. So yeah, like longboarding hadn't really kind of made its resurgence, you know, for the most part. But my uncle spent a lot of time in the early 90s and 80s in australia um and he came back with an eight foot that young longboard um you know and so he was kind of one of like the first guys really to get back on longboards in our area um and then but he snapped that board when he was in australia um had it fixed and brought it back but he the next longboard he got then um was from agsy bed in north shore um he randomly i don't know how it happened but he had um some hobie boards from the states um and so you know at that time no one would have really known who phil edwards was you know like if you kind of anyone anyone who knows sort of knows surf history would know that he's one of the, the most influential surfers of all time you know first person to surf pipeline um you know wide, widely regarded as one of the as one of the greats so my uncle picked up this kind of board and he knew who Phil Edwards was and he you know that kind of I guess kept his interest in longboarding going and he was just that guy out there on the longboard you know one of the few guys out there so I'd kind of I'd always grown up surfing with him um, so when my dad and I got into surfing 
we always had this influence from him, you know, like he only wrote good boards, you know, like and good long boards at that, you know, like he had the Nat Young and the Phil Edwards. So when my dad got, my dad started surfing the same time as I did. Um, and obviously the first thing he did was, you know, get the best boards, but, you know, so he went to, at that time, a shop called Surfers Paradise in Newquay. Um, there's a guy called Steve. I can't remember what his surname was, but he was, he ran Surfers Paradise and it was like, the kind of shops that you've started getting again now, but disappeared for a long time. It was one of those shops that had like, it was just full of stock back in the, in the mid nineties. I mean, and he had like, he, the boards he had in there now would be worth an absolute fortune. Yeah. I remember it, the place. It was full of like, um, you know, Mickey Munoz's. He had Velzies in there. He had like, he like, I mean, all the Hobies in there would have either been shaped by Phil Edwards, you know, who's like, you know, one of the greatest shapers of all time or Terry Martin, who's like also one of the greatest shapers of all time, who's sadly, sadly died. So my dad basically like lived in surface paradise. Anytime he had off, he would go down to, to Newquay and pick up boards. Um, and as he, he kind of progressed with surfing, I was still riding a shortboard at this point. As he, as he progressed, he, um, he moved on to a sh his shorter board. Then was a, he bought an eight, six um, Hobie Peter Pan slug. Um, so which is basically the, the, the pro model of a 60s surfer called um, Peter Pan, basically his name was. Um, but that was my dad's shorter board. It was an 8.6. And, uh, and I guess just like bit by bit, I started riding that on smaller days. Um, you know, when I look back at the kind of, I was just dead keen, you know, and, and by riding that board, I could surf like ripples, you know, which, you, you know, especially in the summertime when, you know, back in those days, I didn't really surf in the winter. It was just too cold and the wetsuits were rubbish. So I just used to, you know, I had to really kind of get my fill in the summer. Um, so I just used to just go in on like days that were like, you know, if you looked at the surf report, you'd have gone, oh, it's not really worth it. But I just used to be out there for hours and hours and hours, you know, absolutely loving life on this eight, six single fin Hobie. And uh, yeah, and it just kind of went from there really. And it kind of, I guess, especially like, you know, North Devon, you probably get a little bit more swell than we do, but it depends on the direction, but similar amounts. But like compared to Cornwall, you know, we don't get that many days that are over three or four foot really. Um, so in owning a longboard and riding a longboard, it, it literally like doubles the amount of time you get to surf, you know. Um, so, so it just ended up just purely for, for geographical reasons, really. I just ended up longboarding a lot. Um, and yeah, and one thing led to another, and then you start, you know, obviously people start noticing, you know, the little grom on the longboard surfing quite well, hanging 10 and stuff, and started going down to North Devon a lot, um, sort of doing the hot doggers contest down there when I was younger. Um, and that, you know, it was a cool time for longboarding, really. It was, it was a lot going on. Um, there was a lot of kind of, not so much sponsorship around, but there was just a lot of people really getting into it, you know, and there was it was sort of a real boom time. The mid nineties was a real boom time for longboarding, you know, and you had kind of like, you had, you know, your heroes like Joel Tudor and Bonga Perkins and those guys, you know, that, and there was loads of like, there was just loads of content coming out videos and stuff, you know, and like great videos coming from California. And, and me and my dad were just, you know, obsessed with it. You know, we'd order these, like, we'd order the videos before they came to the Britain. We'd, we'd, go, we'd like phone up a shop in America and they'd send them over. And yeah, I just was obsessed with it really. I just wanted to be Joel Tudor um yeah and then sort of yeah just kind of just went from there really and then you you obviously start people notice you and then they start suggesting you do contests so like i started doing the chapter longboard contest um you know which were like back in the day they were you know 
they were pretty cool. The cult hole contest scene back then was was way cooler. It was way there was so many more people doing it. Ironically, back in the late nine, mid to late nineties, um, you know, you do contests and there'd be there'd be like 40, 50 people turning up. Whereas unfortunately, ironically, longboarding is popular, but you go to a longboard contest now and you'll be lucky to get 16 people there, you know. Um, it's definitely, in some elements have definitely gone down a bit, but back then it was just buzzing, you know, and there was some real old guys there, like legends of British surfing, really, and you were getting to surf with them and hang out with them. Um, and then, you know, and uh, yeah, so there was kind of, it was a real cool time um, to do it, really. And then I got sponsored by Second Skin then when I was about 13, that kind of, I guess, I say it was getting a bit more serious, but not really. Just used to get some free wetsuits. Um, but yeah, that was kind of what I kind of started thinking, oh, this is quite cool, you know, and you start going further afield then. And the Beer at Surf Festival was a big thing. I used to go there every summer. Um, my parents were pretty cool. They'd pat me off with some responsible longboarder um, and they'd take me off out of school. I'd miss the last few weeks of school and go to the Beer at Surf Festival, which was a uh, a bit of a formative experience for me in many ways. Um, but yeah, you know, you were there, you, you know, every summer then you'd be getting to sort of literally surf with Joel Tudor and Nat Young and Bo Young and yeah, like all your heroes, you know, and it was, it was pretty cool. It's something like, I don't think it was ever really like that accessible for the short borders, you know, like there's not many occasions where like, you know, even now where like a British short border will get to go and surf and, hang out with the top the upper echelons of shortboardings you know you're, you're kind of um you know kelly slayer you know medina toledo you know those guys like that, that it's not really that possible whereas i was like 14 years old surfing coke de basque and even surfing heats with like the world champion you know colin mcphillips or whatever would be in my heat you know and it was like so i was super lucky in that respect um and that yeah that's kind of really that's really how it it blossomed i guess um was you know having those experiences yeah because I've, I've got here I, obviously i've done a little bit of research like like i always do these so i'm going to try and do it in order because it's a bit of a mismatch so you were european longboarding champion 2005 2007 british yeah. longboard champ 2007 british longboard tour champion 2005 2008 for some reason, I've got here you're a stand-up paddling English channel, something in 2010. Yeah, I did. Um, I basically just paddled the English channel on a sub um, for charity. Did it for Surface Against Sewage. Oh, cool. Back in 2010, yeah. Bit of a bit of a bit of a random one on the CV that. <laughs> yeah, like uh, And then the one here I've got is you were seventh in the World Cup in 2009. Yeah, so that was the World Games in Costa Rica. Was that the ISA uh, one, is it? It was, yeah. Um, it was a funny old time, really. With it's a difficult. That was like I think that was one of the last events where the longboarding was part of the main event. It was all kind of you know you had longboard, shortboard, females, males all together. Um, whereas now it's like longboard separated. You know they've kind of they've really split it up. But that was like it was quite cool that that year actually even though it was a bit of a debacle like you know over the last I mean it's been kind of constant over the last 12 years really British surfing since the end of the BSA has never really kind of got itself um back into the kind of shape it used to be in the in the 90s you know where you used to have like a really kind of well-organized team um who'd all go off together that that event for example it's a bit embarrassing really we um we only managed to put 
for the British team in 2009, we only managed to put together two longboarders um, and two female surfers. Um, we didn't have any short borders um, at all. So it meant, you know, our seedings were, you know, it, it kind of paid a disservice then for future years because our seeding was awful, we, you know, following on from that. But yeah, so it was like basically myself and Ben Skinner, pretty much like we got some funding, but we pretty much had to self-fund ourselves, find our own accommodation, all that kind of thing, you know, whereas, you know, the American team literally were in the posh hotel right on the break, you know, and had all the coaches and all that kind of thing. And we were just kind of uh, quite, it's become quite typical, I think, of, of of British surfing in many respects. So hopefully with the, like the Olympic movement and some of the, the stuff that's going on at the moment, it'll sort itself out a little bit, but it's been, it's been a bit of a kind of, it's been a funny kind of, it's been a funny decade really, I'd say for British surfing, but because that, and that was, a, I think that was a real low point, you know, sending, literally sending two longboarders and two females to the world surfing games. Something that, you know, an event that we actually don't do that badly in. Um, you know, I know that, I know last year they did, they actually, they, they did sort of, the new setup seems to be working a lot better because I know, um, you know, like Jay, Jay Quinn had a pretty decent result, but it's still not kind of compared to, you know, when you look at how good the UK or Britain, British sport is, um, I think surfing is kind of, we just, we need to sort it out a bit, you know, then we need to kind of catch up really with that, especially if it is going down that Olympic route. I think what, what our, our problem is, I mean, from an outside looking, in, I've, I've competed a little bit, but, you know, nowhere to, well, nowhere near to the extent that you will have. Um, I I think from an outsider looking in, the programming is is not great. It's getting there slowly. Shortboarding is, um, you know, you, you look at the Aussies and Americans, like you say, they've got these teams, they've got the funding behind it too, to run these programs, to to get guys through, you know, technical aspects, taking them on trips, developing them at a young age to that when they become to a point where you can do those isa world games you know we've got the olympics now putting british surfing back on the world stage like when russell winter was in the asp which is now the wsl you know yeah. putting us back on back on the world scene we um at the moment it just seems like from a surfing perspective that we're just relying on people's natural ability you know going down to the beach doing everything themselves that's exactly i i was talking about this the other day um because i noticed it particularly in portugal you know um it used surfing used to be like that you know it was like basically you just had these random freaks of nature you know your mark richards your tom Cohen's, who just happened to be there <clears throat> happened to pick up a surfboard go surfing and, and and that's how they became world champions or whatever surfing isn't like that anymore and, and i don't i personally i'd rather it stayed the way it was but that i can't you know that would be naive of me to think it's going to go back to that it's not like that anymore surfing is competitive surfing is is strictly a sport okay so you have to treat it like a sport you know you can't just like you say rely on this natural talent to just pop up and someone to have you know some you know little joe blogs down in Newquay at eight years old pushing himself to go surfing every day and just happen to get good it's not like that anymore because the level has gone is gone up exponentially and the top guys are so good you know i mean physically um you know psychologically those guys have got it going on um the problem it seems is like we've got like a bit of a short-term approach to everything you know it's like it's all very last minute you know if like you look at the olympics and and this is why i don't understand with the brit the british side of it like how organized like organizations like British cycling are, British athletics, they're so on it, you know, 
they're planning eight years down the line and that's what you've got to do whereas everything we do is like year to year it just doesn't work like that you know you you can't just make a team say that you've got an event in june you can't put a team together in january you can't even put a team together in the previous september you know the, the team has to have been in place for years and years and years and have come through a system um you know and 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 been and it just takes so much preparation to get to that level um you know most of the top guys in the world now probably wouldn't have made it if they didn't have extremely pushy parents that's one thing i, I definitely noticed that the parent the parental side has become and it's the same with tennis you know like do you think andy murray would have been as good if judy murray hadn't have pushed him to you know to be the, be what he was you know there's behind every great athlete these days there is very very you could say devoted you could say pushy parent and surfing is the same you know so like i think there's so many other factors beyond just raw talent these days. It, I, I think it's almost like that isn't enough anymore. It has to be, you know, there has to be long-term planning. Um, like I'm pretty sure going back to Kono Igarishi, you know, like his, he was born in Japan, but his parents basically moved him to Huntington beach with the sole aim of him becoming a pro surfer, you know, like that, the level of dedication that, I mean, that they've obviously he's had to put it in, but they've had to put in, you know, to, because, you know, they'd have been taking him to the beach every day, taking it, paying for coaching, paying for all his equipment, you know, like that. That's well, like... they have those surf rider clubs like in Australia, don't they? You know, you, the classic ones like, you know, uh, Kulangata, you've got Bondi. They've all got these formed um, like beach beach clubs, beach associations, and they all compete against each other. Mm. Whereas, you know, because of our, I think because of our climate, really, yeah. is that you know you can't be in the water all the time surfing and you haven't got the nice weather where you're outside and you can run lots and lots of competitions because yeah. one if you've got small kids they're gonna go down because the weather's super crap majority of the time yeah and, and i mean and the waves as well you know like how often do we get those just perfect grom waves you know whereas you yeah. go you know like you go to sort of, yeah, like you say, Australia, you know, and they, there's most days you can find like a little back beach with a perfect, and it's, yeah, it's never cold, is it? You know, it's, um, and they can surf before school, they can surf after school, whereas it's pretty depressing being a, you know, a kid who surfs in the winter in Wales, you know, it's like, there's no chance of surfing on a school day, really, unless you, you know, there's a couple of groms where I live, whose dads are like super, like stoked on it. And, you know, and they literally like, drag them out of school straight away they're up you know they're down the beach in the wetsuit for a half hour surf you know but like there's not many not many people who are devoted enough to do that you know um so yeah it, it is difficult but i just think everything seems to be a bit too reactive you know it's that thing of like just oh all right we've got an event coming up we need to put a team together um and i think it is changing um but i think yeah i don't know these things take so long to, to implement, you know, you've only got to look at, you know, like Dave Brailsford's plans for British cycling. They didn't happen overnight. You know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of years where there wasn't the success, you know, there was years and years of, of you know. Do you not think that's eight. down to like the, like I was going back talking about before, like the associations. So we've got like what surf GB now, or yeah. surfing, whatever it's called, you know, that's for me is not really a massive association compared to the size of and the amount of people that surf in the UK I mean like what we're going back to what we were talking about before with the amount of people that are in the water if all those people paid subscription exactly or, you know yeah. to surf GB imagine the amount of money that would be 
to develop young people to do that. Yeah. It would be absolutely amazing. And it's weird, actually, because you're right. You're completely right there. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like you look at like I've been involved in triathlon a little bit and, and cycling. And, you know, I've been a member of British Triathlon, for example, you know, and I paid like my 30 quid a year. And you think there's like hundreds of thousands of people do that. And, we, and you do it because to do a triathlon or you need to have it, the membership for the third party liability. Um, and I think surfing's a bit of a victim of its own kind of coolness really is like people just don't, triathletes are serious, you know, they're all worried about accidents and they wear all protective equipment and they, and you know, and they, and they would genuinely worry about liability and stuff like that. Whereas your average surfer is like, it's part of our nature really to not really care about rules. And, you know, we're, we've always been a counterculture and the kind of the two almost the, the sports side of it and that side of it don't really kind of, they don't marry up that well. And, and it's like you say, I think the big thing, the BSA used, you know, used to have quite a lot of members, you know, and people used to join, like nearly everyone I knew used to join, really. They would be a member of a club, and as a member of the club, you'd join the WSF and via that, the, the British Surfing Association, Welsh Surfing and British Surfing. And they did it for the liability thing, and it's like, maybe they're missing a trick, maybe it isn't an issue, or, or like, but it does seem like that, that like you say, that if, if Surfing GB had every surfer in the UK as a member, which they theoretically, you know, really should, They'd have a, they'd have just millions to spend on, you know, on this kind of stuff. So yeah, I think you, I think if you're gonna go down, the, if you're gonna, as much as I hate to say surfing is a sport, because I kind of like part of me thinks there's something more to it than that. It's that's the way it's going, you know. Wave pools, Olympics, it's a sport now. So you have to start thinking of the the infrastructure in the same way, don't you? You know, and 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 it's in this world, everything comes down to money at the end of the day, doesn't it? You know. What do you think um, of all that? I mean, do, do you follow the WSL and the and the longboard tour? I mean, I, do, do you follow all of that sort of stuff or do you, you know, do the, the edits of. and stuff that come out? Yeah, I do. I kind of do. Um, and I you know, I've obviously follow stuff on Instagram and it's kind of, it's difficult really. Like I'd, I'd never like, I'd never watched the World Longboard Tour, for example. Like I think once you've been and you've done it and you've kind of competed, you kind of, it's got that there's like a frustration side to it. you're like oh, i wish i was there kind of thing or maybe i you know you watch it here and you think oh i could i could i could have got through that one you know and stuff like that um i do i do quite enjoy watching the wsl um but only certain waves really um and i kind of i don't i'm a surfer and i don't really i can't really be bothered to sit around for six hours watching it and and this is the big issue with surfing is like you know, you, you, we got, everyone moans about like, you know, Kelly Slater's been desperate his whole life to get surfing in the Olympics so that like he can get the recognition that he wants, which is fair enough. Like, cause he's one of the greatest, you know, he should be up there as the greatest athletes of all time. One of them. Um, but he's not got the Olympic gold medal, which is clearly, <laughs> clearly what he wants. Cause I, and, and I would too, if I was him, you know, I'm like, you've won all these WSL or ASP world tour events. He, he wants surfing in the Olympics and there's a bit of a, and I think he's probably, key in that and i think his wave ranch and is all part of that thing and he's not um, qualified <laughs> yeah but it's like exactly so he's he's kind of desperately wanted to you know surfing to be in the olympics but and and they all and they the thing they keep coming back to is like you know really speaking you know there's not the prize money is not what it should be you know for the amount of risk and the amount of dedication but the big issue with surfing and the reason you know the wsl just can't ever seem to get his act together you know, it goes through various sponsors and it goes through different CEOs. No one can ever seem to crack it. And the reason being is it's not really a spectator-friendly spectator sport. Half an hour sitting watching guys paddling around, pulling back off waves or 
falling off like it's just not exciting you know and and, and that's that's just the way surfing is but the only way let's look at football as the example you know it's it's a billion like sky pay billions like literally like six billion or something for the football rights whereas i feel like the wsl can't give surf the rights to surfing away they literally like they tried to do it didn't they where it was like a pay pay per view platform and then it ends up just being free again because otherwise no one watches it and you you know you think like you go online and watch it and you're lucky if there's like you might get over 10,000 people watching it, but very rarely you've not got huge. And that's literally like, that's the, that is the upper echelon of surfing. And that's what you, you, that's what the number of people that are watching it. It's no surprise that there's the money isn't, you know, the golf money, the, the football level of money isn't there. Um, and I, and I, and I, I have no idea how you, you deal with that because you put it in a wave pool and that maybe so that solves the issue of the boring sort of, for the, for the average punter, it, it's not boring, but for every surfer watching it, it's the most boring thing ever. So you, you ate in, in creating a format that is more TV and viewer friendly and making a wave pool, you lose your core audience, which is your hardcore surfers who think the way ranch is boring, you know, because there's only so much you can do on a perfect, on a perfect wave that's the same every time. And cause I, I did find, I found that immensely boring. Um, you know, like there, there was some things that they would, you know, there was some pretty cool, wet, there was some good waves there, but generally most of the waves just look the same. Um, and I think most surfers would agree on that one. So it's, it's I, yeah, it, I, I'm glad I'm not involved, to be honest. I, uh, I've, I've, at many points I've been trying, people have tried to like kind of get me involved in, in various surfing associations. And I kind of, I'm, probably, I'm glad I'm not, I'm not having to deal with it because it's a, uh, it's a really surfing and, and the sport of surfing is a, uh, it's a very difficult thing. It's a sort of difficult sort of square to or circle to square or whatever they say. Um, yeah. yeah. Round hole, square peg, and all that sort That's of thing. That's the one. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, um, it's it's quite it is quite a difficult thing, and it also I guess is one of those things that is quite a topical discussion really amongst people. Like you're saying, you you like to think yourself as a, a little bit of a purist, and but to to get surfing recognition needs to be more mainstream so you know you've got the sports side of it but then you know the whole idea of it really when it was first it's it's roots is all traveling isn't it it's traveling finding new locations new destinations new spots meeting people it's more of a it's more of a social activity um than a spectacle now, do yeah. you, do you run the competitions and then put the highlights out there? I don't know. I, I'm not a media mogul. Never going to be really. But you know, th there's lots of things out there that I think that they just need to keep trying it, keep trying it, and just see what works. I mean, I'm enjoying watching the platform as it is now. You know, yeah. I'll, st I'll stick it on. I mean, granted, the pipes on through the through the night here. You know, it starts at five and finishes at three in the morning or four in the morning, but you know, when the European legs come or the South African legs, I just like putting them on in the background, you know, put them yeah. on during work, stick them on the TV or whatever. And, and, you know, you can sit there and watch them or, you know, over breakfast in the morning, you can go and watch the highlight heats, which are like seven minutes long or whatever. You know, you could watch a comp in an hour if you really wanted to. Yeah. I think it's that thing of just, I, I'm happy. I'm happy with the way surfing is i don't need it to be any bigger or yeah. better and i think that's the key really it's like they're trying to make it something that i don't think it can be you know i think um 
it's, I mean, how many times over the years have they experimented? You know, they had that kind of nations thing, didn't they? And then they had like years ago, I remember this was pre like social media and stuff. And they had, I remember reading about it in the, that giant surfer mag used to get every summer. I used to love it. I used to go to the news agents down in France and buy it. And just remember it being like, it had this like, again, it was like, I think it was Kelly Slater was involved in that. It was just like his first foray and they had like, like American football style jerseys and they were in teams and it was like, they've tried all these different things, you know, but like surfing hasn't really, this competitive side hasn't really changed, is it? In, in its entire history. Cause I don't, and I, and I think there's a reason for that, you know, it's kind of, there's only so, you know, you can't shorten it, you know, longer heats actually are better from a, if you want to see the best surfing, but then it's, then it kind of it alienates the kind of the you know the non-surfers so yeah it's a difficult like i find it really awkward like when i'm doing heats where there's a webcast for example i ha i hate it you know i think um I'm, i do much better in, in contests where there's the less technology the better for me but um but yeah you know it, it's that whole kind of thing of you know to watch back your heats and stuff like i've watched back some of my heats and i've gone oh god what was i doing <laughs> um you know and i'm sure it's the same for like the the real good guys you know they must watch them back and look at waves they pulled back on and stuff like that everyone uh, hates watching themselves surfing though you should know that by now yeah well I, I do you know what this is another thing that we i often talk about is that like um i think more people need to see themselves surfing because i think there's a, there's a lot of inflated egos that would uh would quickly pop if uh, if they actually saw themselves. <laughs> I was quite lucky, really. My dad loved, used to love, has always loved filming me. So most of like the footage I put on Instagram is from my dad, and uh, so I was always lucky, really. Like in the in the winter time, especially like when I couldn't surf in the week because of school and that. Um, I just used to spend hours watching myself videos my dad had taken of me and just being very critical, I guess. And and that now is what that's the the basis of most coaching, really. And I guess I guess I pretty much coached coaching myself really growing up in that respect and I was always comparing myself to the best you know like I didn't just used to watch videos of Joel Tudor really uh, on repeat so if I was comparing myself to him you know I was probably never going to quite get there but uh but yeah you know that kind of watching yourself on film is is, is is the best way it's the only way to improve actually um if I'm honest one of my one of my favorite films I, I bought years ago do you remember the Joel Tudor film came out called Reels do you remember yeah that? I do yeah it was all kind of like um sort of like just put together raw footage wasn't it yeah it was amazing and he was on yeah. some mid lengths and longboard and um longboards yeah i think it, where, where was it um filmed it wasn't the trestles was it um was it oceanside it might well be yeah i mean i don't i can't even remember it's funny because I, I when i used to watch all those movies i kind of i hadn't really been to any of these places and i'm sure when i when i look back on them I, there was one on surfline the other day um, it was a, like a real 90s longboard movie and, and I remember loving it I remember loving it when I was a kid and then I watched it the other day because it was free to stream on Surfline and I was like oh yeah that's that's there and that's there and there's all these like spots in California that I know really well now because I go you know I go there every year and um, and I was just like oh yeah that's I wouldn't you know like and it makes you you know it makes you kind of like think oh you never thought when you were a kid that you were going to get to surf all those spots you know um like a lot of the places I've been, I never thought I'd get there, you know. So yeah, I'm quite lucky in that respect. Yeah. Mate, is there a is um we're gonna tie it up a little bit. We're going going for what an hour and twenty minutes now, which is pretty Sorry, cool. Sorry, mate, I'm I'm known to uh, I'm known oh, to no, talk I love it. <laughs> Honestly, I could <laughs> I, I could talk talk about this for like hours and hours, but unfortunately, um viewer listeners don't want to listen to Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> conversations <laughs> for for two hours long, like you know. 
Um, have you got anything going on at the moment? I know you've just come back from Portugal, but is there is there much you've got involved in? Or Yeah, so there's quite a few things I want to do. Um, it's a difficult one, really. I, I didn't really picture myself being in this situation where I was going to be quite as flexible. Um, I kind of thought I was going to be back to kind of just work full time and that kind of thing. But um, my house is rented out until March. I'm kind of, I'm pretty free until then. So I'm going to do... I'm a supply teacher at the moment, so I'm quite lucky in that respect. There's still there's tons of work, actually, ironically. Well, not ironically, because everyone's getting COVID, so that's why there's so much work. But, um, yeah, I've got plenty of time on my hands, really, in terms of the ability to just disappear and do trips and stuff like that. The problem being that there isn't a lot, there aren't a lot of places that I can go to. Um, but I, I was half tempted to do some of the WSL events um, next year. They've released some tour dates. Whether or not they'll actually happen, I don't know. Um, big issue really is you're gonna you, even if you go to what, there's the first events in Portugal, so you go there for a three day trip to do a contest, and then you've got a quarantine for ten days when you get back, which is which is a pain for the for the UK surfers that want to go, and it it kind of shows actually how how kind of little or kind of what a dream world the the WSL live in. They you know they obviously haven't even considered that fact. You know when you think of the talent in the UK, you know, guys like Ben Skinner, Adam Griffiths, um, James Parry, Jack Unsworth, guys that potentially would go and do that event, but probably can't because they wouldn't be able to do the quarantine afterwards, you know? So it's just, yeah, the um, WSL in Europe is very French sort of centered. So that, that would explain that. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, I would like to do that. There's a few kind of in, invitational traditional onboard events that I've been desperate to do. Um, and I'm sort of thinking maybe now's the time, but again, it, it just all comes down to travel restrictions, really. Um, you just don't know. I, I felt like January was going to be a turning point and everything was going to start opening up, but now it's in the last sort of couple of days, even it's flipped the other way. So, um, yeah, I just, I was talking about this driving back from, from the ferry port the other day, I was sort of saying it's, um, best, best thing to do at the moment is just have no plans and just be ready to go at the last minute yeah that's in, just enjoy the area you're in really isn't it yeah you know, that's what i'm trying to do i'm exploring lots of different spots that i know of that i haven't been to for years and you know just just trying to get in the water and as much as i can really yeah it's it is difficult you know because there you know an instagram and social media makes it worse because there's places in the world where people are living relatively normal lives you know like in in australia parts of australia people are surfing and if you follow those guys they're coming into summer you know and they're surfing every day and you and it's popping up on your on your news feed or whatever and it's it is it's you know and even the strongest of us would get a little bit pissed off by that uh and start feeling you know a bit hard done by and a bit sort of down in the dump so yeah it's just a case of kind of like i don't know taking all that stuff with a pinch of salt i guess and maybe just limiting your screen time and just focusing on what you can do really there's no point in um there's no point in getting stressed about, you know, there's plenty of times in my life where I haven't surfed for six weeks, even two months, you know. Um, so I'm not exactly, not exactly kind of suffering too badly at the moment, really, in that respect. Yeah. Well, I'd like to finish on then, mate, if that's right, is a bit of a quick fire round. Go on. So if you could ride one surfboard fin setup for the rest of your life, would it be thruster, single fin, twin fin, quad, bonza or finless? Single fin. First surf film you ever watched? Ooh. I'm going to say it's Surfing Hollow Days by Bruce Brown. 
It's a good film. Yeah, it's a classic. Last surf film you ever watched? Or you have watched now? Oh, you know I, rem- I actually remembered it now. It's called Super Slide. It's by... Oh, what's his name? Ira Opper, I think his name was. It's um, a 90s Lauren Wood movie. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah, it was a good one. Kind of cheesy, you know, it's got like the standard shots of the girls in the bikinis, a bit misogynistic, but yeah, the surfing's pretty good. <laughs> Favourite surfer and why? Um, and you can't choose yourself. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't choose myself. <laughs> um, oh, that's a difficult one. I, I was, so it's all, I would have always said, Joel Tudor. Um, but I think, you know, these things have got to evolve and there is, there's new blood. So I'd say probably Harrison Roach, probably one of my favourites. Um, just, just all around really. Yeah, he's just uh, met, you know, I met him a few times. And super humble guy and just rips, like literally rips on everything. So yeah, I'd say Harrison Roach probably. And the last one is your dream surf trip. Oh, Southern California in 1945, where there was no crowd. <laughs> if I had a time machine. <laughs> it's a good time to choose because that's just after the war. Yeah, just post-war, perfect, you know, kind of like, I just, I, you, you, I, I, you know, I read like um, Mickey Dora's biography, you know, um, like last year. And I was just like, when you surfing back then in California, it was just epic, you know, and this, it's still epic now, but it's just so crowded over there, you know, but the, yeah, the waves there are just so perfect and so fun, you know, for any kind of board. So, um, yeah, I'd say that era of California, I'd go back there if I had, if I had a DeLorean, um, that would be what I'd do. Nice. Elliot Dudley, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. And that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also follow the Grumpy Surfer on Instagram. Thanks for listening.